Now, set against the backdrop of revolutionary Virginia, our speaker's new book, Founders as Fathers, Family Values and Revolutionary Politics, offers an intimate portrait of the lives of the country's most celebrated political leaders, revealing, for the first time, how they struggled to balance civic duties against domestic responsibilities and contended with a revolution that remade family life every bit as much as political institutions. Lori Glover brings to life the surprising, profound connections between family and politics in the lives of the Virginians who became the principal architects of the American Republic. George Mason, Patrick Henry, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, and James Madison. Lori Glover is the John Francis Bannon Endowed Chair in the Department of History at St. Louis University. She's the author of several books about early American history from the 17th to the 19th centuries, including Southern Sons, Becoming Men in the New Nation, All Our Relations, Blood Ties and Emotional Bonds Among the Early South Carolina Gentry, and The Shipwreck That Saved Jamestown, The Sea Venture Castaways, and The Fate of America, which she co-wrote with Daniel Blake Smith. With Craig Thompson Friend, she has edited Southern Manhood, Perspectives on Masculinity in the Old South, and the forthcoming collection, Death and the American South. She has served on the editorial board of the Journal of Southern History and lectured widely on the history of early America, including here at the VHS in 2009. Some of you may remember that very fine lecture. Her latest book, Founders as Fathers, explores the intersections of family values and revolutionary politics in the lives of Virginia's and America's leading founding fathers. Please join me in a warm VHS welcome for Lori Glover. It's a delight to be back at the Virginia Historical Society. Thanks so much for um, hosting me and thanks uh, for coming out this afternoon, midday, a beautiful day uh, to be here in Virginia. So I'm, I'm, uh, I'm grateful. By the way, the uh, riser is for me. Um, <coughs> some people would call it short, but I'm going to call it Madisonian. Uh, the story of the creation of the American Republic is in a large measure a story about Virginia. The former cannot be understood without the latter. Now it's true that Boston, Massachusetts was the seat of patriot radicalism in the 1760s and 1770s. Sam Adams said, it does not take a majority to prevail, but rather an irate, tireless minority keen on setting brush fires of freedom in the minds of men. And no one in British America was more intent or better suited for that endeavor than Adams and his neighbors. But designing a government and a society to replace the colonial order that Americans once inflamed overthrew, that fell to a small group of Virginians. The values and political structures that moved the revolutionary generation from rebellion to republicanism and the ideas and documents that created our government, these came principally 
from men occupying the great houses of Virginia, men whose political careers are likely well known to many friends of the VHS. Just by way of reminder, it was a Virginian, George Mason, who designed the first Declaration of Rights and the first state constitution. Fellow Virginian Thomas Jefferson borrowed heavily from Mason when he became the architect for the Declaration of Independence, marking the creation of an independent American nation. George Washington, Mason's neighbor and friend, led the Continental Army, presided over the Constitutional Convention, and served as the first president of the United States. Jefferson's closest friend, James Madison, was the principal intellectual force behind the Constitution and the most effective advocate for its ratification. The most important and revealing of all the ratification debates took place right here in Richmond with Madison and Washington from Mount Vernon pitted against Mason and Patrick Henry. Henry was the greatest orator of the Revolutionary Age and the voice of the Revolution. The final outcome was incredibly close, 89 to 79, so that the shift of five votes would have redirected the course of American history. Sometimes we forget it today, but everyone knew at the close of the 18th century, no Virginia, no United States. Four of the first five presidents leading the country for 32 of its first 36 years were Virginians, the only exception being the one-term Massachusetts native John Adams. James Madison ensured the passage of the Bill of Rights and played the defining role in shaping the traditions of the U.S. Congress. John Marshall did the same for the Supreme Court. Virginians even monopolized leadership of the State Department. The, offi the office passed from Thomas Jefferson to Edmund Randolph to John Marshall to James Madison to James Monroe with only two interruptions, and both of those men served under Virginia presidents. The Virginians' power was in fact so great that in the early national era, politicians actually floated the idea of a constitutional amendment to, as they said, wrest the sovereignty of the Union out of the hands of Virginians. <laughs> so despite all we know about the political achievements and setbacks of the Virginia revolutionary leaders, a key element of their lives, one essential to fully understanding the context and the consequences of their political ideals, and thus the nature of the American Republic, remains largely unexamined, and that is their families. Certainly, there are books about the private lives of George Washington and Thomas Jefferson, but such works nearly always place politics in the deep background. There are a few rare exceptions. Catherine Alger's work on Dolly and James Madison, for example, and John Kukla's study, Mr. Jefferson's Women, both of those successfully show the interplay of family and politics. But aside from such rare exceptional works, there remains a misleading disconnect between the profound changes that Virginia founders fostered in politics 
and the equally profound changes they experienced in family life. Family and politics are usually studied as separate things, and that's simply not how 18th century men lived. I should ask, can everybody hear me okay? So in Founders as Fathers, I wanted to capture a fuller understanding of politics and family as they connected. And I did so by looking very closely at the lives of five of the most influential Virginians. George Washington, George Mason, Patrick Henry, James Madison, and Thomas Jefferson. Some things I knew from the outset. Thomas Jefferson, for example, repeatedly longed, as he said, to be liberated from the hated occupations of politics and to remain in the bosom of my family. George Washington said he wanted to escape his military command and retire to live under, the vine, uh, under his own vine and fig tree. He told Martha that he would enjoy more happiness with her in a month at home than he would in public life if my stay were to be seven times seven years. As they left their families and plantations for battlefields and state houses and vice versa, this cohort often remarked on the tension between those civic duties and their domestic lives, with at various times one pulling them from the other. George Mason, for example, left the Chesapeake only once during the entire Revolutionary Era, and he did so, and he did much of his work from his parlor at Gunston Hall because he was a single widowed father to nine children. On the other hand, Thomas Jefferson told his daughter, his younger daughter, Polly, that she'd be in a terrible state without her aunt and uncle Epps since she had, he admitted, such a vagrant for a father. It is a mistake then to assume that they thought about politics and family as disconnected. Such friction, after all, requires contact. The deeper I read in the writings and the more I studied the experiences of Virginia's leading revolutionaries, the more connections I discovered between their family lives and their political careers. Not for nothing I saw where they called founding fathers. This was not a metaphor or alliteration. The captivating writings of Mason, Washington, Henry Jefferson, and Madison made clear to me that a familial context underlay the founding generation's political principles and their careers. It was no coincidence that in both their households and in the public sphere, the a political square, these men wanted to exercise independence and wanted to make sure they crafted exactly the right kind of reputation. Nor was it an accident that race ran through their Republican experiment just like it did their plantation households. On a practical level, for example, Mason never accepted the national positions or uh, achieved the historical prominence of other men in this cohort because he prioritized his children. And James Madison was able to devote an entire year to studying constitutions and another year to lobbying for the ratification of the one he designed because he was a 36-year-old bachelor living with and supported by his slaveholding father. He didn't need to work for a living. 
or worry about competing family claims on his time the way that Mason and Patrick Henry did. I also discovered that very important, usually unintended family consequences emerged from the founders' political revolution. They and their descendants grappled with the often troubling ramifications of a transformation in family life that was as every bit as changing as the one they drove in government. The erosion of deference, the creation of a meritocracy, the seductive and often chaotic power of individualism. So let me give an example or two to ground this. We all heard growing up that you can't judge a book by its cover. That you can't, and, and that works I guess as metaphor, that you can't tell a person's character by her appearance. But it's probably a half truth at best, strictly speaking about books. Certainly marketing experts and designers and publicists work very hard on the assumption that readers do judge books by covers. So here's mine. I suggested the painting of the Washington family because if you look close, closely enough at it for a long enough time, it pretty well captures my understanding of that age. The portrait was done during Washington's presidency by the artist Edward Savage, and it became very popular. It's hard for Americans today to appreciate the renown that Washington enjoyed in the 1780s and 1790s, and to comprehend really the level of trust and respect he held. Because of his fame, and because of the heartwarming, all-American story the painting told, it was reproduced in various media forms in the late 18th and early 19th century, from woodcuts to embroidery patterns, um, and again, well into the 19th century. So first, there's the first impression. Clearly, this is a refined family. We can tell from the beautiful fabric of the women's dresses and the lace trim um, on all of their outfits and the sort of study of the map in front of them and the globe that these are people who were educated, refined, genteel. They're also quite leisured. And here we might think especially of Washington's posture. And finally, it's certainly a composition of family love. They're clearly familiar with one another. Standing in close proximity, um, it's a lovely picture. But let's look closer. It evokes political retirement. The great military hero willingly returned to his family, laying down power in a way a king never would. Retirement was in fact a quintessential Republican value. Monarchs, oligarchs, did not lay down power and go back home. That's something that men who served at the will of and to respect the interest of fellow citizens did. Of course, George Washington was not yet retired when the painting was done. This is our first hint at what the painting obscures. The composition also clearly divides men from women, but they're in a shared world. 
The context of the scene is proudly American. The world is before the young country, and if you look closely, you can see that at least three times so that we don't forget. The Potomac is in the background, the federal city design is on the table, and the globe is under the hand of Washington's heir, on whom Washington is resting. Here we see a hint at the weight put on the rising generation to live up to the example of the founders and preserve their Republican experiment for future generations, for us. But let's look closer still. It's instructive to think about this painting not unlike our own family pictures. So we've all been at the reunion or Thanksgiving, and here comes that person in the room, and we're gritting our teeth and rolling our eyes because they're in the family, but we think they're a blankety blank. And then somebody gets out the camera or the cell phone, and what do we all do? We squeeze in close and smile so that the record left behind is not of the eyes rolling and the gossip behind the scene, but of harmony. Everything else gets obscured. So if we think about this painting the way we might think about some of our family reunion photographs, we should ask, what's the rest of the story? What does the image disguise? Well, first of all, the father of the country could not have been. Washington was most likely either fertile or impotent. His wife, a young rich widow when they married, brought two young children into, their, um, into that marriage. She had to bury both of them, her daughter while she was still a teenager and our son, her son shortly after he reached early adulthood. Jack Custis, Martha Washington's only son, squandered nearly every opportunity given him and burdened his already weighted down stepfather during the Revolutionary War. When victory was in sight, Jack Custis wanted to share in the glory and he joined the Continental Army, but he never saw combat, he caught uh, swamp uh, camp fever and died a pointless death in November of 1781. He left a, an estate in chaos and four young children with no father. His 25-year-old widow raised the two younger children, but she sent the older two, a son and a daughter, to live with their grandmother and their step-grandfather, informally adopted by the most famous couple in America. These two children, Eleanor Park Custis and George Washington Park Custis, are the ones in the painting. So beneath the domestic ideal, the portrait really is a study of devastating family heartbreak, fragmentation through death, and finally resilience. And then, of course, there is the slave in the background. Essential to the family's lifestyle, just as slavery was to the republic that Washington helped forge. This particular man, usually thought to be Christopher Shells, is part of the family, but apart from it in the shadows, on the side of the women, distanced from the white man. This perfectly symbolized, unintentionally, I might add, the place of slavery in the American Republic. A part of it, but apart from it. 
intimately connected, but intentionally detached. The Washington family could be leisured because Christopher Shales labored. All white men in the United States could be free and equal because they would never be black or enslaved. As I said, the image was very popular and in the early 19th century, depending on who sold a version of it where, sometimes the black man was rendered white and sometimes he was erased or cropped out of the image so as not to sully the portrait of the father of the country. This was a pattern of erasing George Washington's history with a brutal labor system that continued through the myth of his freeing his slaves upon his death or being somehow a gentle master, as if there could be such a thing. The truth was, of course, that nothing George Washington had or did was really separate from his ownership of slaves. His family's lifestyle and his country's future, everything in that painting, from the silk dresses to the promise of Western expansion, everything was bought and paid for by slave labor. Well, let's circle back to George Washington Park Custis. Here on your left, he is in a painting of a, as a young man and a photograph near the close of his life. He offers us a, a very good example of how revolutionary values came home in Virginia. George and Martha called him Washy and sometimes Tub, which I'm sure was not a help. Washington's writings are full of frustrations and lament over the boy. From his infancy, he complained, I have discovered an almost unconquerable disposition to indolence in everything that does not tend to his amusement. When Washi returned home and without approval from school, a disgusted Washington grumbled that he appeared moped and stupid. Confronted by relatives about his lazy attitude toward his education, Washi told them, in essence, to mind their own business. Respecting his seriousness, his stepfather wrote his step-grandfather, Washi declared he had no cause for seriousness and that his mind was perfectly easy. Now, we might attribute this youthful misconduct to the fact that Tubbs' surrogate father was preoccupied running the country and didn't take the time he might have taken to keep the boy in line. Or we might point to the predictability of sending a teenager off to school with no direct adult supervision and his pockets full of money. A teenager, by the way, who saw awaiting him a fortune that meant that he would never need to work a day in his life. George Washington was hardly alone in his exasperation. Rather, such parental complaints about headstrong, unruly children, especially boys, refusing to straighten up was nearly epidemic in the early national era. So I think there's something else here, and that is the influence of revolutionary values on family life. Though never a biological father himself, George Washington headed at Mount Vernon a large and fluid household of nieces and nephews, and he mentored many young relatives and protégés, several of whom came to live with him and Martha. The consistent thread in his writing to all of them, regardless even of gender, was that how they decided to act in youth would determine their prospects in life. 
They should not expect to inherit a good reputation, a bright future, and power. Such colonial traditions have been swept away by the revolution. Now, that all had to be earned by individual conduct and character. To one young nephew, for example, he wrote, your future character and reputation will depend very much, if not entirely, upon the habits and manners which you contract in the present period of your life. They will make an impression upon you which can never be effaced. To a niece, he wrote, I will endeavor to inculcate upon your mind the delicacy and danger of that period to which you have now entered. You are at this moment about to be stamped with that character which will adhere to you throughout life. Washington thought exactly the same thing about the young American Republic. Announcing his 1783 military retirement, he said this, there is an opinion still left to the United States of America, whether they will be respectable and prosperous or contemptible and miserable. This is the time for their political probation. This is the moment when the eyes of the whole world are turned upon them. This is the moment to establish or ruin their national character forever. This was the nature of independence and self-determination and it worked just the same for the country as it did for individual young men and women. As they debated how exactly their decidedly precarious independent republic would function and how they might raise the next generation to help them form a proper character, the founders grappled again and again with one transcendent issue, balancing liberty and power. Really that tension between liberty and power remains foundational to our nation's political culture today. Does freedom of speech and assembly mean you can picket a fallen soldier's funeral? How much personal liberty can you exercise without jeopardizing common good? Should police departments use military equipment against protesters and looters? How much power can government exercise without destroying citizens' liberty? Insisting in 1776 on claiming their liberty at all cost left the American revolutionaries without the structures of power that afforded them security as colonies. All liberty and no power was as dangerous as too much power and too little liberty. In 1776, Virginians, especially George Mason, took the lead in planning legal structures, a written bill of rights and state constitution, that would restore civic order without compromising citizens' rights. Other states followed Virginia's example. As they drafted state constitutions, they too struggled to balance liberty and power. And this tricky matter of allowing government enough power to properly function but not so much as to undermine citizens' rights, reemerged in the Constitutional Convention in 1787, the ratification process, and the practical operations of the new federal government after 1790. This was the same, this same conflict echoed across Virginia as founders tried to father the next generation of both dutiful and independent Republican leaders, the Tub Custises of the world. 
we see in the households of Virginia's leading founders a profound shift in child rearing in both the goals of parents and the methods of raising children, especially sons, who would by their actions either advance or destroy the American Republic. And patriarchal power usually proved no match for youthful liberty. Authoritarianism gave way to affection as the basis of family attachment, self-determination rather than deference, the most highly prized trait among boys. Fathers eager to raise worthy heirs of the revolution didn't want to compel obedience through traditional exertions of power like physical force or the threat of disinheritance. Instead, they wanted to inspire their sons to develop an independent will to exercise their liberty in a forthright, restrained manner. Of course, giving them every advantage and every opportunity they could afford and a tremendous amount of latitude. Young people were supposed to learn to express their liberty by choosing dutifulness, to freely opt to conduct themselves in ways advantageous to their families and their country, to give up some liberty and submit to some power to serve the greater good. The Virginia planter St. George Tucker beautifully captured the stakes of this self-determination in a letter to two of his teenage stepsons. You may have visited his house in Williamsburg. He was twice married and had, um, I think, nine children and several stepchildren. And this is from a letter to two of those stepsons who were headed off to college. And I think it's one of the most telling quotes about parenting and the revolution I have ever read. The world is a circle about every man, exactly of such a size as his abilities make it. It is very well known, five miles from Petersburg, that Mr. Booker is a good chairmaker, and that Alexander Taylor is a very tolerable cabinet maker. But it is known all over the civilized world that General Washington is a great general, that Dr. Franklin is a great philosopher and politician, and that Mr. Rittenhouse is a great mathematical genius. It is your election at present, whether you will have a world like Mr. Booker's and Alexander Taylor's worlds, or a world like General Washington, Dr. Franklin, and Mr. Rittenhouse. As Tucker's counsel indicated, Virginia elite's definition of success not only depended on individual initiative, it also ran very high, probably, at least perhaps, insuperably high for who could be the next Washington or the next Franklin. Most of the heirs of the Virginia founders repaid such high hopes with correspondingly low behavior. <laughs> Liberty became license. Washi Custis and his cousins George Steptoe and Lawrence Custis, who George Washington took charge of when his brother died, all ignored repeated appeals from Washington for dutifulness and turned self-determination and liberty into indulgence and dissolution. And things were even worse for James and Dolly Madison. On the left is the young Dolly Madison, and on the right is the man her son became. Dolly's son and James's stepson, 
the aptly named Payne Todd, <laughs> was far more disappointing than the Washington boys. Payne Todd was a willful, spoiled child who became a manipulative youth and then a drunken, gambling-addicted man. James Madison paid over $40,000 on Payne's gambling debts, and even that was not enough to keep him out of debtor's prison. Always, the Madisons waited for Payne to make a better choice. Never did they disinherit him. Disinherit him. Even the most attentive of fathers struggled with willful sons who ignored their advice. When George Mason finally quit trying to coax his errant son Tom into behaving and finally upbraided him, Tom just quit riding home. In retrospect, permissive, often absent fathers, hoping that headstrong boys would choose dutifulness over self-indulgence, seems improbable if not downright foolish. But maybe no more so than imagining that citizens would set aside their own interest and reason together to achieve the common good. The founders' family values, like their political philosophy, was certainly idealistic. They might well have applied to their household Tom Paine's wise counsel regarding the structure of government. When we are planning for posterity, we ought to remember that virtue is not hereditary. The parenting of adolescent sons clearly reveals that Virginia's founders carried home their most fundamental and noble assumptions about civil society. The vexing blend of autonomy and duty and child rearing was the emotional familial corollary to the fraught political balance between liberty and power. The result, often a disappointing mess, both at home and in the country. No wonder that even the optimist of the bunch, Thomas Jefferson, lamented near the end of his life that it looked like, he said, I am now to die in the belief that the useless sacrifice of themselves by the generation of 1776 to acquire self-government and happiness to their country is to be thrown away by the unwise and unworthy passions of their sons. Visiting the magnificently restored homes of these men intended to afford a more intimate understanding of their lives inadvertently obscures much of this family history. From the parlors and dining rooms of Mount Vernon, Monticello, and Gunston Hall, it's easy to be awed and hard to hear the rowdy, frustrating, distracting, indulged children, and hard to remember the family experiences that unfolded inside the velvet ropes. Well, I don't want to close on a low note or appear to be excessively critical, so let me be clear. To my mind, there is little room to quarrel with the political achievements of the founders in general and with these five men in particular. They led a radical revolution on behalf of liberty and representative democracy. Not a perfect one, but a radical one. 
In 12 short years, they moved from a vague idea articulated in the Declaration of Independence to a brilliant design of government in the U.S. Constitution that endures to today. They launched a worldwide revolution in political and social understanding that has spanned the globe and continues to reshape the world. But there was sometimes a high price to pay for that greatness. And sometimes it was paid by the people they loved the most and in ways they never anticipated. There was a family context to the things that they did and family consequences. They certainly knew that. It's we who have forgotten. To remember that Thomas Jefferson drafted the Declaration of Independence when he was a 33-year-old husband, desperate to get home to his sick wife, who had already endured several miscarriages and was pregnant again, that Patrick Henry's transformative liberty or death speech was delivered while his mentally ill wife was locked away in their basement for fear she might hurt herself or their children, that General Washington had to leave the battlefield to be at the deathbed of his stepson. Remembering these things doesn't diminish the political careers of the founders. If anything, the truth makes them all the more remarkable. Virginia's founders were, after all, only human. To be sure, men of exceptional education and talent and vision who lived in an extraordinary age and rose to, their and rose to the challenge that that age presented. But still, only men. And so not so far removed from us as we tend to think. When we focus our attention on just what the founders did at Valley Forge or here in Richmond or in the federal city, and we forget the plantations they presided over and the families they struggled to lead, we deny them their complexity, their vulnerabilities, and their humanity. And that is a disservice to their lives, to history, and to us. Thank you. I think we, I'll be happy to field questions. I think we have about 15 more minutes. Is that right? When you were doing your research, did you ever run across uh, this? I've heard that Washington really wanted to leave the presidency after his first term and that there was a woman whose name I do not recall who finally persuaded him to stay. Is there something to that story? Well, I don't know that particular, the particular woman you're referencing. I, I'm not familiar with that. Um, but Washington certainly was eager to leave the presidency after his first term and then finally after the second. Um, he was uh, reluctant to go to the Constitutional Convention uh, he was eager to be relieved of the command of the Continental Army. I mean, he certainly uh, liked the power uh, that he held in those positions, and he felt an obligation to serve, but he, throughout various parts of his uh, very illustrious career, he, was, he wanted to get back to Mount Vernon and to Martha and the family that they had there. So um, 
the first part of that story rings absolutely true, and I just don't know the particular person you're referencing in terms of the second. But, but that sounds exactly like a thing that, that could have happened. Yes, um, am I using this correctly? Yes. Um, thank you very much. Um, I wondered if anybody had ever suggested about the Edward Savage portrait of the Washington family that the slave had been added because compositionally it looks overweight on the right oh. <laughs> and the slave has no face and if it was just added to sort of suggest that this was the support system. Well, I have, if that, uh, if that was the case, I've not read that anywhere. Uh, my understanding is that that was the original composition and that any changes came later in time and in fact, um, I, I write about this in the book and other historians and uh, I guess art historians have written about the partially obscured face of the uh, slave. I, I write about that in the book and, and I suggested a cover to Yale and they sent me the mock-up and they had cropped him out of the picture for I think that reason that it, it didn't balance right and I had to write back and say, oh no, 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 we cannot do that at all because we'd just be perpetuating the erasure that I was highly critical of. Um. Uh, excuse me, the founders and the patricians generally, I think, uh, tried to teach their, uh, their kids self-determination, duty, common good. Mm -hmm. Was that generally true for the rank and file non-patrician Americans? So we know a lot more about the um, family lives of the men I cover today and then other men like St. George Tucker, who, who I talked about only briefly. Um, those are the people who kept their letters. Uh, in fact, in the case of Madison, Washington, and Jefferson, they ran editorial projects out of their homes so that their letters could be preserved for us. And then over time, the letters of elites are the ones that got handed down to families that had the wherewithal to preserve them, and then they were um, acquired by repositories like the Virginia Historical Society. So lots of facts in history and in the collection of historical documents drives us toward a very evidentiary base for the 18th century. <clears throat> but the best we know from the writings of non-elites is that that idea about in the American Republic, if you work hard, first of all, if you're white and, uh, and male, given that, if you work hard, if you become educated, if you refine your talents to a high sheen, then the opportunities presented to you will, will be broadened. Like that was taught to children. And then, of course, there are examples of that playing out in fact. And I, I guess Andrew Jackson is a good example uh, of that among the uh, next generation. Um, so I hope that answered the question. Thanks. Could you expand a little bit on Edmund Randolph's contributions? So I did not research um, Randolph for this project. I read a lot more about Randolph. I'm, I'm working now on a, a book about the ratification debates in Virginia. And so Randolph, of course, features prominently uh, in that story. But I just, I don't know a whole lot about Randolph's family uh, and, and didn't survey that for this book because I wanted it to 
I wanted to be sort of deeply personal and connected to politics, and there were a finite number of people I could study. I mean, other people have asked me about um, James Monroe, for example, that would be another uh, person who, who might have been included, but, but was not. I know we focused on the Virginia families, but oh. uh, a real exception to that rule of the dissolute children would be the Adams family. Uh, <laughs> That family went on for generations of public service. Uh, do, yes. do you have something about them in the book, or did you concentrate just no, on Virginia? No, this book is just about the Virginians. When I started working on it, I was going to do most of these same men, but also Alexander Hamilton, Benjamin Franklin, and John Adams. And what I realized as I got into the researching of it is that the the culture in New York, Philadelphia, and Massachusetts was so different from the underlying culture in Virginia in some critical ways. I mean, there were shared values and assumptions about the revolution, but there was a particular context to Virginia. And, and so then I had a choice to make. And it became a pretty easy choice because as I said to start, you know, the Virginians are the ones who have the ideas and, the, and draft the texts that are the heart of the American Republic. So, um, so that's why it's not in the book. Now, the, John Quincy Adams was certainly a worthy heir to his father. And in fact, if you look at most of the founding generation across North America, he would have to be among the most uh, successful. He had two brothers, though, who really floundered with alcoholism, with mental illness. One of the two, I believe, committed suicide. Uh, they were of grievous disappointment to John and Abigail Adams. So uh, John Quincy um, was the exception, I think, and not the rule. Yeah, that's a very good question, thank you. Um, with, uh, with the uh, founding fathers being away from their families so much, the role of the tutor must have uh, occupied a, a prominent position in the children's formation. Can you um, tell us a little bit about how these tutors were selected? Obviously, I would think they were mostly males. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, what kind of values they instilled or tried to instill in the children? So there were uh, tutors hired, for example, to come to uh, Gunston Hall and tutors that uh, worked out of Mount Vernon to get um, the sons ready to go off to university, but also to teach things like uh, proper penmanship and dance and appreciation for music. Uh, so that, you know, that idea of being a refined person that was inculcated from um, from young adulthood. And all of these families, well, Patrick Henry really worked for a living. I think he's unusual in that sense among my cohort. He became a slaveholder and, and very well to do, but he is probably a better example of rising on your own uh, among this generation. Um, great care was taken to make sure that the right kind of influence was presented to young people, and that was the case whether it was tutors coming into the home or relatives who they were sent to live with. You know, the Jefferson's younger daughter lived with uh, her aunt and uncle who then became her father-in-law and mother-in-law later on because she 
married her first cousin. And then they were very careful about the kinds of schools that they sent boys to. Uh, you know, you wanted to have a Princeton uh, or a, a Harvard education. But the further you get into the 19th century, the more skittish Southerners are about sending their sons to the North because they're worried about them developing anti-slavery ideas.